Hello, readers. Barry Zito is a Cy Young Award winner, two-time World Series champ, and three-time All-Star who spent 15 seasons in the MLB, split between the Oakland A's and San Francisco Giants. Since retiring in 2015, he shifted his focus to God, family, music, and writing a book about his life story. It's called Curveball, How I Discovered True Fulfillment After Chasing Fortune and Fame. Barry, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. How are you? Doing well. Uh, we'll start off by asking, what was your goal in writing this book, Barry? My goal is probably to write something that I wish I would have read going into my you know, professional career, even approaching college baseball, really. I mean, I just uh, took it very seriously, which was you know, good for some things, but not good for others. So um, I, I didn't really have much balance in my life. You start the book with the final series of the 2010 season for your San Francisco Giants against San Diego with you and the Padres neck and neck in the standings. After enduring a difficult season as the team's highest paid player, you actually had a chance to redeem yourself by starting and winning the Saturday game, which would have clinched a division. But you guys lost. However, Johnny Sanchez helped pitch the team to victory the following day. What were your emotions like on the field after your team clinched and what went down during the locker room celebration? Yeah, it was, um, that was a kind of a, the darkest time, I think, for me, um, personally and professionally. And it was, you know, I was trying to win approval and, you know, get the San Francisco fans to appreciate me after many failed years as a, you know, the highest paid guy in the league pitching wise. And, um, so yeah, when I came up short on that game, when I could have got us in, you know, and then Johnny came up behind me in the next game and won, I just, I mean, I just, there was a lot of self-hatred, to be honest. I mean, just shame, uh, anger, rage, uh, basically every negative emotion you could you could figure out there. And um, unfortunately, I wasn't really happy for the team because uh, I knew I wasn't going to be a part of anything going forward. And so that's exactly what happened after we got up in the clubhouse for the champagne celebration. You know, I was emotional, kind of in and out of tears, actually, just for my own selfish defeat, really, um, didn't even have the capacity to be happy for the team. And so ended up getting told from the manager that they were going to leave me off the playoff roster and, you know, just go ahead and go home and we'll see you next spring. And, um, of course, I fought for a, a chance to just stay and, and work out, even though I was not going to play. And I ended up doing that. <clears throat> that was a <laughs> the longest month of my life, to be honest, even though we won the World Series, man. it was It was tough. That's understandable, and this also led to a difficult phone call to your dad. What did the call entail? Why was it so difficult to call your dad to ask such a question, and what was his response? My father, you know, we had a relationship, I think like a lot of kids growing up in sports, um, you know, where I just started to feel like my my value and my self-worth was based on my performance. And... Uh, you know, that I, I would be approved of by my father if I did well. And if I didn't do well, then I was not approved of. And, um, so I had a thought, you know, in my head that I just wanted to quit baseball at that point and, and move on with my life just because I had been in so much mental agony for so many years as a giant. So I called him after we got home, uh, after I got home from the celebration that day and, and, you know, asked him, tell them that I told him that I wanted to quit, but said, you know, would you still love me, Dad, if I quit baseball? And uh, that was something I didn't know the answer to, uh, even at, you know, in my 30s. And his response was, 
that would be a bad business decision, but of course I'd still love you. And of course, uh, I did not <laughs> see that as the right answer. Uh, so it kind of confirmed maybe, uh, my suspicion that he was valuing the baseball side, you know, maybe a little more than the personal relationship side. And, uh, which is, Hey, I think it's a normal thing to do. You know, you get a lot of people around fame and money and it makes everyone kind of weird. So, but yeah, that was, that was a major blow, um, along with the baseball stuff. You know, you lay out your family history, and it's pretty jaw-dropping. Would you mind sharing your grandfather Giuseppe's Italian military past and how your dad, Joseph, came to be the 17th and final child for Giuseppe and your grandmother, Katerina? Yeah, it's, it's a little strange um, when I tell it, but my father was born in the Bronx, but his father was a four-star general in the Italian army before they went you know, completely fascist crazy with Mussolini, but he was alongside Mussolini in the, you know, early 1900s. And then they left, you know, I want to say in 1921, somewhere around there, they came to America. But yeah, he was Mussolini's right-hand man. And we have multiple pictures. There's even pictures in the book of my grandfather with all his medals, you know, standing right there, right next to Mussolini. And after they came over to America, my grandfather, obviously being having a streak of evil, as we put it in the book, he went ahead and made the decision to rape his 14-year-old stepdaughter. And the result of that assault was my father. And so my father was raised in a house that was ashamed of him and trying to hide the fact that this now 15-year-old girl had a baby out of wedlock. So my father kind of, from an early age, was just hidden in the back of the house and they tried not to show the neighborhood people. Of course, they would have been like, where'd this baby come from? You know, it was a very strange situation. And I think it really paved the way for a lot of my father's dysfunction, which then got transferred down to me. I think that's a fair conclusion to make for sure. We're talking to Barry Zito right now. He is a Cy Young Award winner, two-time World Series champ, and three-time All-Star who spent 15 seasons in the MLB, split between the Oakland A's and San Francisco Giants. Since retiring in 2015, he has shifted his focus to God, family, music, and writing a new book about his life story. It's called Curveball, How I Discovered True Fulfillment After Chasing Four and fame. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Make sure to check him out on Twitter as well at Barry Zito Music. Now, Barry, I believe you got your first glove and ball at the age of six. When did you realize you were a talented pitcher and just how instrumental was your dad in your evolution as a ball player? Yeah, I definitely did. I mean, I, I came in to San Diego. We moved from Vegas and uh, I was able to find something I loved to do, which was baseball. I ran out to the center of that t-ball field and I loved it ever ever since that first day. And so my father, being a, a talent manager, he was a very successful musician, but he went into managing talent when they left New York and went to Las Vegas. He then saw that love for baseball in me and wanted to grow it and really, you know, make it blossom. And so we just kind of became a team. And we were in that backyard just about every day, except for holidays and sick days from the age of six to 18 and, you know, there wasn't any music in San Diego, so he basically focused full attention on me and almost treated me like his only client. Hmm. And uh, I was also surprised to learn the scope of your drug abuse in high school. You even sold them, too. Did using or selling cause you any major problems in your teenage years? Yeah, that was something that, uh, you know, I was a little hesitant to write that, but I think the beauty about embracing your story and your journey is being totally transparent. But 
it's funny. I didn't mention the book, but my father actually had our record, my records sealed when I was 18. And that was very important to him that nobody ever knew that I had been arrested for certain things and sold drugs like methamphetamines and all these things. But for me, I didn't have much money at all growing up. So I was just trying to get some extra spending money and unfortunately turned to selling drugs and and doing drugs to do that. Your parents, seeing that you were hanging out with kind of a shady crowd and sensing that you were spiraling out of control, actually had you switch high schools for your senior year. Was the move to the University of San Diego High School a lifesaver for you? It was, yeah. I went to a public school for three years, was just running around with the wrong crowd. And I think really I just wanted part of my life to be my own. And most of my life was baseball, and that was essentially all controlled by my father the way that I interpreted it. And my father didn't mean any harm. He was doing his best to raise his son and really grow a skill. But the way I interpreted it is nothing was actually mine. So yeah, I created this kind of life, this hidden life of doing all this drugs and, you know, rolling around to the bad parts of towns and all that. And luckily they caught on and they pulled me out of public school, sent me to private school my senior year. And we found a couple fathers of the other guys on the team that helped pay for school because we couldn't afford it. And really, that was the fork in the road that sent me to the life I live now. I mean, I'm convinced if I stayed in public school at the other place, it would have been a completely different ending for me. So you shifted to high school for your senior year, and uh, you were eventually good enough that scouts start hearing about you, teams start hearing about you, and you guys realize that there's a chance that you could be drafted. You were actually selected by the Mariners out of high school and then by the Texas Rangers following your sophomore year pitching for JUCO, but you didn't sign with either of those two teams because of your dad's steadfast belief that you were first-round talent. And he proved to be correct after the A's took you with the ninth pick of the first round in 1999. What was it like hearing your name called out as the ninth pick in the entire draft? Yeah, that was, you know, the surreal moment that I'll never forget. Even writing it in the book, I could still hear Billy Bean's voice from the A's saying, this is Billy Bean of the Oakland A's, and we select left-handed pitcher out of University of Southern California, Barry Zito. Again, my father was really my career manager, and I had been drafted even in the third round the year before I got drafted by the A's. And we turned down $300,000, you know, and had no cash, no money for anything, And it just really goes to show how great my father was at orchestrating a plan of a career. And for me, it was one of the highest, most memorable moments of my life. Barry, I'm a Rangers fan, and uh, reading about Texas not meeting that demand for you as a third-round pick and a guy that uh, truly had a high ceiling, I'm I'm a little bit upset about that. I'm not going to lie. For a franchise that has dealt with the pitching problems that they have for pretty much their entire existence, but certainly at that time as well. (laughs) man i remember we used to poke fun at the area scout we were working with at the time and uh you know but i mean it's who can ever tell right when you project talent you just never know what's going to happen and i always got a bad rap for throwing 89 90 miles an hour and of course velocity is always so highly touted still right yes it is but you know what else is highly (laughs) touted especially in 2019 by teams like the houston astros that are winning it's a spin rate and uh, the ability to get spin on a baseball so you were well ahead of your time in that regard as well talking to barry zito right now former pro ball player he's got a new book out about his life it is a fantastic read it's called curveball how i discovered true fulfillment after chasing fortune and fame so just 13 months after you're drafted the a's called you up for a start with the big league club even more impressive you were good off the bat. You held the Angels in checking your debut. A few starts later, you went toe-to-toe with Roger Clemens in Yankee Stadium. 
Were you able to maintain a level of humility through this early success, or how did it translate for you with how you conducted yourself away from the Diamonds? No, it was absolutely, it all went to my head. And, you know, this is more of a memoir, but there is a spiritual component here, and and it's kind of two stories in tandem. And, you know, on the spiritual side, I didn't have any kind of spiritual foundation in my life. My grandmother started a spiritual teaching that was very Eastern in how they approach life, which is if you can believe it, you can achieve it, and that essentially you can create the life you want for yourself, and it's all up to you. I mean, that was awesome while life was going good. And, and at that point in my career that you're talking about, life was amazing. So I took credit for every success and pitching in Yankee Stadium and outdueling Roger Clemens, right, your childhood hero. I mean, I went out the night after that game and, you know, ended up cheating on my girlfriend from college who I was in love with. And it was my really my first girlfriend ever and just making all kinds of bad decisions, right, those first couple of years in Oakland because – I believe the hype, you know, they say, don't believe it, but man, when you're in it, it is very hard if you don't have something that is more important to you than what you're actually doing out there. Well, I also found it interesting that you were willing to admit to being a jerk at times when interacting with people during your pro career, especially at that time in your life with fans, with strangers, with casual acquaintances, but you're able to make those admissions because you now understand that it was more about your own insecurities. Is there one such moment that you're more or most embarrassed about than the others all these years later? That's a great question. I mean, again, it was all about me. And I don't think I ever came off as like, let's say an arrogant guy. I think I aimed to come off as somebody that was likable and and maybe humble. But on the inside, that was the destructive part is on the inside, I felt like I was more special than everybody cooler than better than everybody and so it was pure arrogance and I think specifically I get into the book about how I really I used women to boost my ego right and I think guys do that all the time especially in this me too era you see guys treating women especially beautiful women a certain way in order to boost their sense of power or domination or ego and so I feel terribly about the relationships that I kind of treated as more of a surface interaction when maybe for the women, they were more emotionally attached. And, you know, me, I was just this insecure kid and no girls ever talked to me in high school. So I was getting my revenge, so to speak, on all the pretty girls, right, that didn't talk to me. So there was many interactions that I regret behaving the way I did. You actually compare your mindset around this time to that of being a sort of real-life Vinny Chase from the movie Entourage. So after your sixth full year in Oakland, you hit free agency, and boy, did you cash in. You've already referenced it. you become the highest-paid pitcher in the history of Major League Baseball. San Francisco signs you to that seven-year, $126 million deal. And uh, I'm just curious to know how that deal affected your ego, as well as your pitching. Did that big contract have an adverse effect on both those things? Oh, yeah. The contract was all about making me, because I had lived in Hollywood, right, since I was 21. I moved to L.A. to go to Pierce Junior College and USC, which are both in L.A. So I was this kind of San Diego kid who grew up inland with not a lot of money. And now I live in Hollywood. And, of course, after a few years meeting all the right people, starting to talk to, like, the famous people and date the famous girls and all that. And so, you know, 126 million, that's just more ammunition to make me the coolest guy in LA, right? Mm -hmm. Or in my own mind, at least. 
and it was very adverse to my pitching results. Pitching almost became the thing that was going to get me a sense of importance (laughs) versus pitching is what I do and I want to do it well. Pitching became a vehicle to my own, you know, need for security, you know, with so many insecurities in my heart. 2008 wasn't good for you on the field in San Francisco, but something interesting happened off the field that following off season. You, the consummate bachelor, met someone that knocked you off your feet. Who was she? How did y'all meet? And when did y'all actually go out on your first date? Yeah, I actually invited one of the Giants players, Brian Wilson, who feared the beard and, you know, one of the best closers in the game for many years. He lived in my house up in, on the top of the Hollywood Hills there for that offseason, and we were just going nuts. We were training P90X, you know, first thing in the morning and drinking, you know, tequila shots at night. <laughs> and in the middle of that, a friend of mine who, uh, you know, was a kind of a big Hollywood bachelor himself called me up and said he was going to Dodger Stadium for a Madonna concert and that I should come. He said, there's some girls coming. It's going to be fun. So me and Brian show up and we're at the, uh, in one of the press suites there with some important folks. And, and this guy walks in with this kind of string of models behind him, you know, probably 10 girls. And one of these girls was a girl named Amber Sire, this Southern belle from a little tiny farm town in Southeast Missouri. And that is now, you know, my wife and I have two kids with her. And that was the first time we met. And I would tell you for sure that I knew something was different and special about her in the first moment we met. It was incredible. But when did you actually go on that first date? Was it maybe a week or two after that? No, we, I think I somehow got her number, but literally she denied me for the next year and a half. She had a boyfriend at the time. So a year and a half later, I got to take her on a date. And I had always just thought, this girl's drop-dead gorgeous, but she's got a man. And I was never one to try to, you know, home wreck, as I call it, you know, or, or, you know, hang out with a chick that's already involved. But yeah, so, you know, we went on a date a year and a half later. I invited her up to watch her favorite team, the Cardinals, in San Fran as I would pitch against them. And once you know it, I had a great game and went eight scoreless against Adam Wainwright and... Man, the rest is history. We were married a year and a half later. Added motivation uh, certainly helped out. Now, your sp- <laughs> yes, it did. Your spiritual search for inner peace has taken you to a lot of places, including some that, in retrospect, may seem a little bit absurd. Is there one in particular that you think back on and just laugh about in 2019? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I must have tried 10 different religions and spiritual practices along the way, really just searching for, I think, what we all want, which is inner peace, and to know that we have help in life, because life is pretty hard, man. But I I had a spiritual healer along the way that won me over on the idea of going to the East Coast and ingesting these strange, I don't even know what to call it, supplements that were actually bacteria excrement. Uh, and, and the way this works is they, they would feed pure gold to these bacteria and they would excrete them out, poop them out. Right. And in this excrement, there was some type of chemical that could actually stimulate brain growth. And so I was all in, I went out there, I took it and we were convinced that our brains had entered this new stage of brain growth and that I was developing at a different level, even in my late twenties. Yeah, so I tell that story in the book, but there was a handful of those different kind of approaches there. And again, I was only searching for peace and contentment in life, but 
I'll tell you what, you'll do a lot of things if you're desperate enough, man. No question. I've uh, certainly done a few of those things as well. But I asked that question because <laughs> in, in January 2011, your spiritual search turned to Christianity at the suggestion of your future wife, Amber. This spiritual shift is something that you had hinted at throughout the book. What is it about Christianity that appeals to you where the other ideologies may have fallen short? Listen, I didn't have any preconceived notions of Christianity. I know there are so many people that have had bad experiences as kids or in their church, or maybe their pastor was running around on his wife or you name it, but I didn't have any of that. So I got to kind of hear this thing, which was different than every other religion I'd tried. And, you know, I've really jumped into learning more about it because I still don't have much of it figured out at all. But what I learned is that Christianity is the only religion or spirituality that it's not up to me to get to God. It's actually the other way around. God's trying to get to me. And every other thing I had tried along the way was what can I do? How good can I be? You know, how great can my mind think and how strong can my willpower be to get this thing right? And then I had this thing called Christianity saying, you're actually never going to get it right. So like, don't even bother trying. I mean, of course, you have to try to be a good person, but just to know that I can't do it on my own strength alone, that was all I had to hear. And really, after that, it was just a journey. But I will say this, whenever something didn't work in my life, all these spiritual practices I would try, I would just move on to the next one. And something has to be said for the fact that I have never (laughs) moved on or even tried, you know, in almost, uh, let's say, nine years, just because this one actually works. (laughs) That's uh, very well said right there. We're talking to Barry Zito right now, Cy Young Award winner, two-time World Series champion, newly published author. The book is Curveball, How I Discovered True Fulfillment After Chasing Fortune and Fame. Barry, going back to 2010 real quick in the Giants World Series run that was so miserable for you, after that ended, you actually went back to your off-season home in L.A. and came to a realization that you were codependent. What does that mean, and how does a person address such an addiction in a healthy manner? Yeah, codependency is something I always heard, but I didn't know. And and essentially what it is, it's like any 12-step, right? The first step is admitted my life has become unmanageable, and I'm admitting that I'm powerless over what is it. And it's not alcohol. For me, it was I'm powerless over other people's opinions. And I realized that because I needed approval so much from my father growing up, I just transferred that need onto the thousands of fans in the ballpark or the 17 people in the coffee shop at San Francisco. When I'd walk in, if somebody looked at me the wrong way, internally, I was collapsing. And I realized I was so obsessed with people's opinions of me. And that was when I realized, oh, man, I'm actually like the most selfish, self-centered person on the planet where I never would have admitted that or even thought that before. And so step two of the 12 step was willing to admit there's a power greater than me that can restore me my sanity. And that was about the best thing I'd heard my whole life, you know, because I was raised under the idea of I am my own higher power, right? It's up to me and my willpower and there's nothing greater. And really that paved the way. And eight months later I came to Christ and just said, I don't even want it anymore. I'm giving it away. Wow. Well, for all the self-inflicted hardships that you faced during your time with the Giants, do your postseason contributions to the 2012 World Series team serve as a sort of retribution for you? And do you have a favorite moment from that postseason? It's funny because people ask me 
does the 2010 ring or the 2012 ring, which I guess you could say I earned that on the field because I pitched well, which one matters the most? And 2010 really is what brought me to the depths of my pain and suffering, which created great change in my life. 2012 was just the icing after that. Um, But the 2012 run for me was all about just giving up the results, right? Giving up all these things I can't control. And those are the things I held on to for dear life all through my Giants contract. And so in 2012, I went out into these very high pressure games like the World Series. And I was like, hey, if I give up 10 runs today, honestly, I'm okay with that. I just need to give everything I got to every single pitch. And it became about what's actually important, right? Go out there, do your best, and let the chips fall where they might. And that was something I could never actually be at peace with. You know, I could never be okay with going out and losing if I did my best. I had to win at all costs, even if it required, (laughs) even if I had to give up my sanity. And uh, as we already discussed, you called your dad back in 2010 ready to quit baseball, but he discouraged it. You made a similar call to him during the 2013 season, which was after a serious medical issue nearly cost your dad his life, but did require his legs to be amputated, and it really changed his perspective on things. What was his response this time when you called him saying that you were considering quitting baseball? Yeah, I mean, you know, I was expecting pushback and expecting him to tell me what a bad business decision that was, and he was a changed man. He had had a stroke a couple years before and was so appreciative and grateful for life. So he said, well, I think that's fine. If you want to retire, that's what you got to do. You know, you you got a good woman now. And I mean, I was floored. I was like, who, who are you? And what have you done with Joseph Zito? (laughs) And uh, last thing here, Barry, you took a year off in 2014 before giving it one more go in 2015 with the A's, but as a member of their AAA club, the Nashville Sounds. You spent the entire season in the minors before getting a couple of starts with the A's to close things out. Why was that such a satisfactory way for you to end your baseball career? Well, I think like so many professional athletes and I would say any entertainers, uh, really anyone that's been in the same job for a long time, things tend to grow a little stale. So I became very disenchanted with baseball in general after the seven-year Giants contract, and I just needed to take a breath. And so after training by myself in parks in San Diego for a year, I came back with the A's, and I got to play AAA baseball, something I previously probably would have been embarrassed to admit, but now with this new perspective of gratitude, was just so happy to be playing baseball professionally on beautiful fields and, you know, with good competition and I truly got to enjoy why I came here in the first place, so to speak. I love throwing baseballs, you know, and I got to really reconnect with the love that I had for pitching and let all the nasty middle part of my career fall away. And I'm grateful, too, because I can watch baseball now. And you'd probably be surprised to hear that a lot of retired athletes can't even watch the sport they played because there's too many wounds that's hitting for them internally. I've heard that more than once, but not everybody is at peace with things like you uh, sound, not only in this conversation, but also in reading this excellent new book. It is called Curveball, How I Discovered True Fulfillment After Chasing Fortune and Fame. He is Barry Zito, and he has been nice enough to join me for about a half hour today to talk about these things. Barry, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for the book, and uh, best of luck in the future, man. Outstanding. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.